We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. We've counted almost 300 different things people say I'm lying about. The two things that have stuck are that I'm lying about my race and that I'm actually stealing a ton of money. And both of those are juicy and have proven to be really effective. And because they're effective and won't go away, my gut tells me from now until the day I die, People are going to be saying this shit. When you like, say it's not going away. When you say effective, has it impacted your ability to do what you wanted to do? Oh yeah, I have had events canceled over this type of stuff. I've had people decide not to work with me because they saw something that was complete misinformation, but purported to be true by people they thought they could trust. When I'm popular, politicians will retweet me. On a day where I'm trending for some bullshit, people won't touch me with a 10-foot pole. Sean King is an activist who's often out helping families who are in the midst of crisis. But he's also himself often in the midst of controversy. A lot of people are always asking questions about what's going on with Sean King. I've known Sean for many years, so... In this interview, I ask him point blank about his work and his troubles. Why so many people have questions about financial situations that have gone on with different families. Why so many people doubt his blackness. Why so many people question his intentions, his integrity. Why he puts so many traumatic images in our faces through his social media. I ask him all of that. And look, to his credit, he doesn't reject any question. He welcomes them all. He answers them all. And to me, most powerfully, he explains the origin story of his activism. Some white boys beat him up so badly, he ended up in the hospital. And that moment shaped his entire life. I didn't know that story until this conversation. And... It really gives you a sense of why he does the work that he does. Look, if you have questions about Sean King, listen to this interview and listen to him answer the questions that persist about him and then see what you think about Sean King. It's Sean King on Torre Show.
I'm curious where you are politically. I heard you say you left the Democratic Party. I see you um, being a righteous um, critic of the Democratic Party because there's a lot yeah, of folks. Not a, that's not a way to make any friends, man. I, no. I, <laughs> well, well, a lot of folks are like, we can't have any critique of Biden at all because that wins the election for Trump. And I don't think that's fair at all. I think we should be able to critique Biden, especially from the left. Well, I think that I have two thoughts about it. One, I start from a point of realism where people are really afraid. And Trump has caused a degree of uh, terror, fear, dread. The idea of him being reelected has people so terrified and they don't really know what it means for him to win or lose. They don't know what the path to victory looks like. But I see a lot of people who aren't faking, who aren't Democratic insiders, who, who don't work for the DNC, who when I criticize Joe Biden, and listen, I, I made a decision where I wasn't going to crack jokes on the man. I wasn't going to make like personal insults. But if I have a critique of his policy, I see people I see people legitimately freak out because in their mind, they've concluded this shit is going to help get this man, get Trump reelected. And what I've tried to and so they really believe that. And I think the root of that is real fear. I think people's nerves are frayed. I think 2020 has just exhausted people in general. So I think there's some pushback that's not rooted. It's not rooted in fact. I think there is room to critique Joe Biden, but I think what I, it took me a while to accept that people who just lost it, if I had a legitimate critique of him or Kamala Harris, the Democratic Party, man, it's just, it's kind of a irrational fear of losing to Trump where My pushback on that is this. There are millions of people who would like to vote in this election. And if you don't give them room to ask their questions, if you don't give them room to have a a criticism with with kind of a thoughtful response to it, what they're going to turn into, they're not going to become Trump voters. They're just going to be non-voters. And what I've tried to do is say, like, listen, a lot of people who didn't want to support this man just have questions and critiques. Let's throw them out there. Let's try to get some answers. But there's really, it reminds me, uh, man, I don't even think I've ever talked about this. Um, in 2001, soon after 9-11, I was a student at Morehouse and I had a huge critique. I'm talking, this was like two weeks after 9-11. I just had a huge critique of the American government and George Bush. And man, they like called me to the administrative offices at Morehouse and were like, listen, <laughs> you don't stop this. Like, like they were basically like threatening to suspend me from school. <laughs> and there was just this irrational fear of critiquing the administration. And we're kind of in that space now. You know, it's like, but yeah, don't, do you- don't even... It's one thing to not diss the man. That's one thing. But like people don't even have space for critique, you I'm, know, no, like, no room for it. Are we going to be able to critique him after the election? Because uh, no, well, that's what people are saying. People are saying, Sean, if you save this stuff to 
the day after the election will be okay. But what I know is all of this is pretense for you can't critique this man. You can't critique this party. We've been here before. It was pretty much the same way during all eight years of the Obama administration. If you, right. if you critiqued him, if you critiqued, yeah, listen, I say it like this. I'm, I might've told you this in my house with, with my wife and most of my family. If you critique president Obama, you are dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to hear uh, it. I'm not really trying my, to hear it. With my wife, there, there is my wife comes from a super religious family. There's God. A little less than God is Michelle Obama. Right. And a little less than Michelle is Barack. Right. And it does, you can talk to them about drones. Listen, they don't give a damn. It doesn't matter what you say. Like, listen, he dropped this drone on an American citizen. This was a child. Man, they don't they don't want to hear that. They just they, they no, I'm serious. They'll come back and say, "Listen, you don't know why he did that. You don't know you don't have the the intel." <laughs> and and so for 8 years of the Obama administration and hell, that continues now. You just can't critique the man. But you're in an interesting position and I I I share it in many ways in having a great ideological respect for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And seeing the progressive movement at the at once rising in the democratic party and being ignored by the democratic party right yeah. and some of the yeah. important principles to progressives are being ignored and it makes you wonder as a progressive is the democratic party taking me for granted and how long do do i put up with that uh, saying if i'm inside the house i can maybe change it or do I need to say, I'm, I'm out of here because I'm not getting anything from you guys? Well, yeah, I mean, those are, those are the two primary options. And, and I respect both paths. You know, one path is I'm going to become kind of a righteous insider, which requires you to play by inside rules. There's a very different set of rules and expectations. I think AOC is probably the greatest example of somebody who has adjusted, for instance, her critiques of Nancy Pelosi, uh, her critiques of the Democratic Party. She's tempered those things in, a, in an explicit way because now she's trying to rise up inside of the, of the confines of the party itself. She's trying to have power inside of the House. And, uh, and that requires you to play by a very different set of rules. And I think when she was first elected, you know, she was like, F those rules. I'm critiquing this, this person, this policy. She came in guns blazing. She's tempered all of that. Then on the outside, you have people who just say, like, listen, my, my job is to critique, critique everybody here to try to hold them accountable to make them better. The struggle is Bernie Sanders ends up being a kind of de facto stand-in for a third party. Mm -hmm. and, and when he's running for president, his movement and his staff and his organization that's around him, just, just during the elections, ends up serving effectively as the third party 
of Democrat, Republican, and then this far left Bernie party. But what you see is after 2016, when he's no longer running, after 2020, when he's no longer running, the problem with that is as a strategy, when he's not running, there is no third, you know, effective third party. That's kind of what his campaign represents. But once he's no longer running, there's no longer a machine mm-hmm. to drive that policy, to drive the debate. He's tried to create it. Other people have tried to create it. And what you know is in most of the developed world, they don't have two. In most of the world, they don't have two parties. And mm-hmm. in some countries, they have damn 10, 15 parties, even sure. in presidential elections. Sure. In, in most major developed countries, it's three or four or five parties, including parties that literally might have formed six months ago, sure. can rise up and be like a major force in a presidential election. Here, man, we're stuck between two parties. And, and the truth is, we really need four or five parties in this country to kind of represent the different factions. You know, Republicans, I wouldn't, call, I wouldn't say they're struggling, but you know, they have their own kind of multiple divisions on the right and they're all tr- they're trying to fit all of that shit in one Trump basket and they're struggling with that at least. But as a Bernie guy, do you feel abandoned by the Democratic Party? Generally, yes. Yeah, I think, you know, it, thankfully I can speak super freely because when I've never worked for Bernie, everything I ever did for Bernie was as a volunteer. No, I mean, just ideologically... Uh, you 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 yeah. you're a, yeah, you're well, a true progressive. Oh yeah, man. Not not no, as a uh, not as a worker for Bernie, but as a as a. Well, no, follower. I mean to say, I mean to say, I always feel a certain level of freedom to be able to speak it truly. Like I'm not a delegate to the like. So, for instance, a lot of my homies who were big Bernie supporters are currently delegates in the convention, and they're kind of playing by some insider rules right now. No, I feel completely abandoned. Like I. I like Bernie Sanders, the human being. I've gotten to know him and his family and all of that. But my, I gravitated toward Bernie like most people really based on policy. Like, I believe strongly in universal health care. Again, in this pandemic, it's, I think, really the, the missing piece to how a country responds to it Every other country that's flattened the curve had universal health care that was completely covered by your taxes. And every developed country in the world has no copays, no deductibles. It's just a part of your way of life. In this country, the number of uninsured people has exploded. And we have tens of millions of people who technically have insurance, but their copays and deductibles are so high they don't even use it. And in a pandemic, when you have this crazy for-profit health system that operates the way it does, it has been kind of at the root of why we're not able to flatten the curve. So this is, this is something that you could cut and paste Bernie's politics from the 70s, 80s, or last week, and he's been fighting for this type of thing forever. Well, a lot of us have grown to believe in these things as principle, and the Democratic Party still won't embrace universal health care. Uh, Mm. still won't embrace some of the most progressive policies that Bernie's campaign represented. Um, 
they the, the Democratic Party still has not endorsed the most progressive legislation on justice reform, on the climate. And and so while you have some super progressive voices in the House who are promoting it, the leadership of the Democratic Party, for, if you mean Tom Perez as the head of the DNC, or if you mean Nancy Pelosi or others, they don't support these policies. And Joe Biden doesn't either. And so when you see your position, not just as, hey, I'm a Bernie guy, but I, hey, here are the 10 policies that wake me up in the morning to, to, to fight for change. The Democratic Party literally doesn't support any of these 10 policies. So um, in that sense, even if you get to, you know, policies on on war in the military, how you approach Israel and Palestine, all of these types of things that were super big and are super big on the left, you really have no home in the Democratic Party on most of those policies. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I don't, I don't want to say this in a, in, a, in a messed up way, but I kind of laugh to keep from crying because I know you're away from all of this. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, are the police still trying to kill you? <laughs> mm. Man, um, so for people who are hearing this for the first time, you know, I get I get death threats all the time, you know, like 
right now I'm at my home in Brooklyn. We have security outside of the house just sitting there 24 hours a day. And you have a bodyguard, basically. Yeah, that travels everywhere I go, uh, which is not our style. It's not our way. Like, you've known me before this, and that wasn't six months ago. That wasn't how I was rolling. But most of the death threats that I have gotten over the past 10 years always seemed like they were random internet lies designed just to freak me and my family out, but that they weren't serious or substantive. They could still freak you out. And that was the purpose of them. Like people over the years, we've had people, people send us pictures of our homes. I've had people before send me pictures of my garbage where they had gotten all of our garbage and and rummaged through it and would take pictures of our bills and randomness. Uh, I've had people send me videos where they had taken drones of our homes in different places where we've lived across the years. And so all of that stuff will legitimately freak you out. And that always seemed, after it all, that seemed what it was really designed to do. But just about two months ago, uh, I had somebody who had a a friend inside of a California law enforcement Facebook group. And it was an invite-only Facebook group for current and former California police officers. And they were literally openly in the group plotting my assassination inside of the Facebook group. Like they weren't bullshitting. They weren't joking. They weren't like putting giggle emojis. They were asking people to sign up for it as if it was an active initiative, asking people what roles they would play. And for the first time in my life, these people were using their actual names, their actual faces, because they thought all of this was private and that nobody would see it. And so for the first time, I saw it as, oh, this has crossed over in a way that is different than people using email addresses they created last night to intimidate me. These are real people who are trained with weapons and guns and everything else talking about what it would mean to kill me. And the struggle is, who do you, who do you call? Um, do what, do you call that police department? No. Uh, do you call the FBI? That doesn't seem to make sense. And so it's a, it's, um, it's a terrifying position to be in because when current and former law enforcement officers are plotting this, uh, you feel like you have nowhere to go except to, to get security and to talk about it publicly. So multiple Police departments in California, primarily the Long Beach Police Department, they called the FBI. I've talked to the FBI about it, which is obviously uncomfortable. I don't even know. Even that, my own attorney says, Sean, if the FBI makes this a case, they could then use that as an excuse to tap your phones. FBI could use this as an excuse to monitor you or your house or whatever. So it's just like, just a crazy position to be in. Now, um, I think all of those officers who did that because I published their names and faces and profiles, they all, I think, hate that they got caught. But it shows me, it shows me that, you know, how many other Facebook groups exist that I, that I don't know about where people are discussing 
this not just about me, but other activists or organizers or outspoken voices, what it really shows me is while this nation has gone out of its way to 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 have surveillance of of Muslims or people from certain countries, it has pretty much left white supremacists, ultra conservatives, and others just free to say or do whatever they want. Like police didn't catch this. This was the police. You know, this was mm. somebody's at least semi-righteous who saw it and was disturbed enough that they called a friend and said, hey, uh, something really crazy is going down inside of this group. I mean, you, so, all right, let me, let me, let me touch on the other side of it because um, you, you know, you do a lot of good work, but you catch a lot of controversy. And I want to spend more sure. time in this, in this time on the work, but. Yeah, no, but a, yeah, ask anything, man. Ask it. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm an open book. And so most of the, my work from day to day, I'm always working, always pushing, always hustling. And I've made mistakes. I've There are things. I'm never the type of guy who says, you know what? If I could do it all over again, I'd just do it exactly the way I did it. Right. No, I, I never believe that. I, if, I could do, if I could do last year over again, there are 10 little things I would tinker with and adjust. And so because I'm always pushing and hustling, it makes me an easy target. And because I'm always trying to fight for solutions or speak out on something, the sheer volume of information also means I can say something dumb, I can make a mistake, then it always makes me open for criticism, you know? I mean, there's a lot of black people who get triggered when they hear the name, right? And they want to say different things. And I've read you you have dealt with these different things in terms of like here's my receipts, here's my independent counsel. So I don't want to go through like piece by piece sort of thing. Sure. But just sure. like the, I wonder why you feel like this chorus of anger is out there and they're like, well, he didn't come up with the money in this situation. He which is but hold on though, which is bullshit. There's never there has never been a situation or circumstance in my life like you just see. Well, what about the Tamir Rice situation? Oh, good. We could talk about any of those situations. Uh, all the way back in 2014, just days after Tamir was murdered, um, a brother named Tory Russell, who was an activist in Ferguson, who actually lived in Ferguson. Uh, traveled all the way up to Cleveland to be with Tamir's family. He was with Tamir's mother, Samaria, and Tamir's uncle, her brother. And they called me, Tori and Tamir's mother and brother called me on the, on the telephone. I had been tweeting about his case. I was one of the first people that shared the, the horrible video of, of Tamir after he was murdered. And Tori gave me a call, and I asked Tamir's mother and uncle if there was anything that we could do. Tamir's uncle said that Tamir's mother, Samaria, still had to go to work. You have to understand, when somebody is killed by police, they might have a couple of vacation days, but they don't all of a sudden get five months of paid leave or whatever. And so she had used her vacation days and needed to go back to work. And so Tori, and I talk about this in my book, Tori said, Sean, is there any way we could raise money for the family? We said yes. With their permission, Tori, myself, and Tamir's family started a fundraiser 
in their name, connected to their accounts, and people raised $70,000 or so. White supremacists started contacting Tamir's mother's attorney, who was like Better Call Saul. Like it was literally the Cleveland version. He was literally a guy who had, you know, car wreck commercials on television in Cleveland. And these attorneys, after people, this is, this is in 2014, a lot has changed. These attorneys will literally show up at people's home to this day after their loved ones are killed by police. They call this guy, Timothy Kirchman, and say, Sean King, is going to steal this money from Tamir's family. Teray, it was connected to the family's name, the family's accounts. Money never came to me and never, when I have raised money for families, never in my life has that money ever come to me, ever been processed by me, by my organizations. He then shut the account down, shut the fundraiser down, and get this, took the money for himself. She then, the the attorney, took the money. She then fired him and hired Ben Crump, who's a close friend of mine. And we, me, with Ben Crump, then started another fundraiser for Tamir's family. That money was never in my name, never came to me. And when it got shut down, None of that money ended up going to Tamir's mother. And, um, you know, and so people use that as some example of there, like fraud or scam. It was like, no, like we literally the, did that. And you have to understand this is six years ago. Yeah, like yeah. GoFundMe was still new. And this was us saying, yeah, let's get this mother some money to support her. I've, you know? I, I, I've, and, and, and I've seen you. Go online and do like TikTok breakdowns of like, here's what they're saying and here's what actually happened, and especially financially. Tamir's mother literally they're, they're, did a video thanking me, did a video saying Sean has never touched any money for this. And I am still friends with this family to this very day. There's and, the, the financial yeah. piece. And I, I, I promise I don't want to harp on this. I didn't call you. I don't, I don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind any questions about any money I have ever raised. Well, this ever. particular thing continues to be a critique that people try to throw at you, and and I hear black people throwing it. If it was Breitbart, I'd be like, well, here's whatever. The here's, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. In in 2014, uh, it, it actually started in 2013. I started raising money with Ben Crump for the family of Trayvon Martin. And I pushed like hell to help raise money. Now you have to understand, George Zimmerman was raising money online at the same time. So we felt a burden not to compete with this monster, but we felt a burden to not only get this family support, but to show the country that we support this family just as much as randoms support this man who murdered their son. And that was my first time raising, this was the fundraiser was started by the family, started by the family in conjunction with Ben Crump, who I work with to this day. And we raised several hundred thousand dollars to support the family. 
the following year, before we raised money for Tamir, Ben Crump and the family of Mike Brown, who I still have, I'm still, I'm friends with Michael Brown Jr.'s father and mother. I did an event with Michael Brown Sr. just last weekend on the sixth anniversary of his death. We raised money for Michael Brown. And what happened was, every time somebody was killed by police, people would come to me and say, Sean, can you help us raise money for this family? And never in doing this have any of these accounts been in my name, had my email address, had my bank account. None of the money has ever come to me. But there are two things that make me super public. One, I'm always raising it. It's always me. I'm always pushing it. And it always raises money. And so any family that comes to me, we always hit our goal. It may raise 50000 if that's our goal, or 100000 or 200000 I think there's something in people that thinks that if they raise that money, they couldn't imagine not tinkering with it or fooling with it. It's actually, that's a crime. Yeah. Like, this week, Steve Bannon yeah. was just arrested for basically tinkering with money that was raised online. I mean, the, the crime being one thing, the immorality of somebody loses their child to white supremacy and somebody would take a dollar that was intended to help them out. Well, what's crazy is there has never, ever in my life been a family or victim of anything. And I have not only helped families who've been victims of racial violence, police brutality, I've helped family families whose homes have burned down, families who've experienced natural disasters. Never has a family said, Sean, we, Sean King helped raise XYZ money and kept 50 cents of it. I've never touched anybody's money ever. And there's not a single family who says otherwise. What I was going to say is, these lies saying that I was keeping this money started with, first started with like, weird anonymous white supremacist. And then it started where Sean Hannity would talk about it on his show. Glenn Beck would talk about it on his show. Bill O'Reilly would say, would literally say, it's rumored that Sean King is mismanaging money he's raising for these families. They talked about this on their shows. Well, I still had peace about it because at least it was white supremacists and then it hopped over to ultra conservatives. And it started being moderate whites who started saying, is, is he mismanaging this money? Then it hopped over to liberal whites. By the beginning of 2016, black folk were saying it. And it had been said so many times in so many different ways that I think it got to the, it hopped this fence where, and unless you've ever been on the other side of this, it would be hard to understand what it feels like. This idea that, if it's been said so many times, it must be true. Right. And every family, I, every family I've ever worked with has gone on the record to say this isn't true. Every attorney that I've ever worked with in these cases, have they've done videos, they've issued statements, they've signed affidavits. Uh, we hired an independent auditor who said, listen, I gave them 10 years of every bank account. I gave them the usernames and passwords to every account, every checking account, every savings account. I gave them 
usernames and passwords to all of my emails, all of my social media. And they then issued a report and people then said, well, uh, he knows some of these people. That's like, listen, if I mismanaged $5 meant for another cause, I would have already been held responsible either by the Obama administration or the Trump administration or a local prosecutor. People have it in their head that I'm like every time I for the past six years of this movement, I have a job like I have a full time job where I am making an actual income. And not only would I not have need to do this, um, everything I do is scrutinized so much. I just think it's it's one of the things that I do well. And I think it started as somebody attacking something that I do well. And it has caused me at this point to be very leery of raising money for families or causes, because when I do it, here's an example. You know, Tatiana Jefferson was a young woman who was shot and killed outside of Dallas. She was playing video games with her nephew. They had left the door open. It was a hot summer night. Mm. And a neighbor called 911 thinking that because the door was open, somebody had broken into the house. Police creep up on the back of the house and literally shoot through her bedroom window and kill her right there in front of her nephew. Mm-hmm. A Tatiana's family, in conjunction with their attorney, said they would like to raise a scholarship fund for the nephew. She loved this boy, and she was the she had the highest level of education of anybody in her family, and so she was the. She was the person that so many people in the family aspired to be. So the attorney started this education fund on GoFundMe. I start sharing the link, which has nothing to do with me. Black folk then start a campaign on GoFundMe saying, I'm going to steal this money. GoFundMe shuts it down. To this day, we've raised no money for this young boy's educational fund and black folk literally had that thing canceled and not because they planned on raising it themselves, not because they had a better idea. It's like, it's just destructive and uh, it's sad, man. Like it, uh, it frustrates me because I've maintained great relationships with all of these families and to see it become like a, a rumor treated as truth is frustrating, not just for me, but for these families. You'd be shocked, man. To this day, people who think they're like holding me accountable, contact Tamir's family, trying to get to the truth, like bugging this, this family about money that we actually raised for them, bugging Mike Brown's family, bugging Eric Garner's family. And um, and often it's black journalists, black folk on Twitter who think they're going to like get to the bottom of some shit, pestering families over it. It's, it's unnerving. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, 
Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Your um, social is very powerful. Quite often it's very triggering. Some days I'm like, you know, thank you, Sean, for letting me know about this, the story that I did not know, showing me this video and not yeah. seen. Some days I'm like, I can't with you right now, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much. I can't. It is I can't, too much. I can't yeah. be Just, up on would... every video. It's freaking yeah. killing me. Um, how do you feel about just the volume of 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 death that you are flooding us with, which we have a need to know because we got to know what's going on. But at the same time, if you, I feel like if you consume it all, you're gonna lose your mind. Yeah, well, I think there's there's truth there all around. I, I think first, I share a fraction of, I probably share one out of 20 videos that families come to me and ask me to share. Really? Um, and so if you go to my timeline today on Instagram or Facebook, I get videos that families ask me to share daily. And... I think the only videos I've shared over the past, I might've shared five videos over the past five months. And even before then, if I was ever sharing a larger volume of videos, it's always because families of their attorneys come to me and say, this case is a cold case. Police or prosecutors won't meet with them. It's getting no coverage nationally. And either the family or their attorneys hope that me sharing the video will give them some form of coverage or leverage to be able to break the case open. And they've seen me and other attorneys do this before. So when I received the, the video of Ahmaud Aubrey being killed, uh, my best friend is the civil rights attorney, Lee Merritt. He's the attorney for Ahmaud's mother, uh, Wanda Cooper Jones. And when we got that video that morning, I mean, we literally cried. And we were on the phone, two grown-ass men, devastated at what we saw. And, Very and hard to watch. We, 
we knew what we thought happened to Ahmad, but actually seeing it, it felt like we had just witnessed a lynching. And in, in effect, that's what it was. And we had the painful conversation that we always have. If we share this, can it be used to open a door to get this family justice? Will it bring this family closer to being able to hold the people accountable who did what they did? And we believe that it we believe that would be the case. And in effect, that was the case. That video helped us be able to not only identify the role of the three men who were eventually arrested, but it gave us the public pressure to hold them accountable. But we discussed, and as we always do, as I do with families, as I do with attorneys, that it would also cause a significant degree of trauma and harm to everybody else who watched it. In other words, when I share it, it is done with the hope. And it's outrageous that this is what we feel we have to do. It's done with the hope that this thing can give the family some leverage to get some measure of justice, a, a civil court victory, a criminal court victory, something. But we also do it with the knowledge that it harms you, me, my kids, yours, society. So it is horrible. Like I have, I don't feel good about sharing them. Like I don't, I don't take any, I don't take any pride in doing it. I hate when people say, I love these things. Of course I don't. I, I, I work with these families. I, many of these families have literally, you know, had dinner at my table in my house. I've had dinner at their tables in their homes. Like I, these families, we become family. And, and what we are basically trading is the possibility for justice for one family. We are trading the harm that it will then cause everybody else who sees it. And I don't know if that trade is fair. Um, I don't like it, but it is often what we have. You know, I was talking, um, this week will be the 65th anniversary of the death of Emmett Till. And many people don't know that Emmett Till literally still has living family who still fight for justice, who still want people to be held accountable. And families like Emmett Till's family have always encouraged me, kind of in the spirit of his mother, Mamie Till, to, to share these videos, which I do with, I've never shared a video without the permission and blessing of these families. But if the families feel like sharing it could show the evil of this country, if sharing it could put a mirror on this country's uh, racism and bigotry and injustice and get them closer to justice, I feel a bigger burden to those families. But I, I don't have peace about the harm that it causes, you, you know, you say it, no a it, it lot. Does cause harm. You say no a lot. It's not that I. Do, it's not that I say no. It's, it's one. It's a capacity thing. Um, I like when I like I manage all of my own social media, and I just don't have the capacity to 
dive into every case, uh, to understand the facts of every case. Like when I share a video, so I'm not sharing videos for clicks or laughs or giggles or to be sensational. When I share them, I'm sharing them because I can connect it into some pursuit of justice. But if I'm not able to wrap my mind around in that moment, like here's what that looks like, um, that makes it that makes it less likely that I'm going to share it. Now there are times where a family may ask me to share something, and I think that me sharing it may hurt that family's case. Um, if I see, while a family sees their loved one being murdered, I have now to Ray, I've studied at least 500 videos of people being killed by police. And many of these videos I've watched a hundred times more. And sometimes when I get these videos, I realize me sharing this video is not going, the family thinks it will help them, but I know it won't. In the case of George Floyd, I felt strongly that sharing that video would help George Floyd's family hold those officers accountable. So I shared it. And uh, I still haven't watched that video all the way through. That and you particular should. video and you is should. very, very You know, I, I, you know, like I'm, I'm in the basement of my home right now. My wife doesn't watch any of the videos. And my wife is not an activist. She's, a, she's an educator. And she, um, you know, I feel called to do the work that I do. Uh, Lee Merritt, who's my partner in this work, he feels called to it. We watch these videos, study these horrible videos, and sometimes share them in part because we feel it's a part of our work. And, and so we're both in therapy, uh, Lee and I both. We, um, there's a level of trauma and harm it's caused us, and and we we work through that. Um, you you were it's hard a, man. You were a pastor, so when I you, was. So when you say that you feel called to this, that's yeah. not just uh, uh, colloquial like that. Like, yeah. Like what do you? Even that's you, a religious word, even in a way. You yeah, know. Like uh, what, what do you? What do you mean by you feel you? you uh, I mean, is there a moment when you when you've heard the calling? No, not not like the, not in that sense. But I do feel, for my entire life, I have always advocated for families who've experienced injustice. You know, I talk in my book. It was in 1999. I was student government president at Morehouse, and I was a, I was a teenager. I was 19 when Amadou Diallo was shot. 41 times on the doorstep of his home in the Bronx. And Amadou at that time, he was to myself and my teenage friends, he was what Breonna Taylor is to teenagers today. And, 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 you, and you remember, there was no social media. There was hardly even internet. There was internet, but not like it is today. Right. And we... That was my first time traveling, organizing, marching against police brutality. The year before that, uh, in 1998, James Byrd uh, was literally lynched by white supremacists in Jasper, Texas. I was a, a sophomore at Morehouse, and we were 
we were horrified that this man was literally lynched and dismembered by white supremacists. And each time I saw that as kind of a student activist and student leader, I always felt a burden to fight for people who had experienced injustice. I had experienced grave injustice in my life, and it caused me to have like a a real sensitivity to people in pain, to people who had been wronged. Um, I worked for three years full time in Atlanta's jails and prisons as a traveling teacher. Uh, my first job out of Morehouse was as a high school history teacher. And then I got recruited into this beautiful local organization that did work in Atlanta's jails and prisons. And I traveled to 13 different jails and prisons all around Metro Atlanta full time as a traveling teacher, school teacher. And all of that just gave me just a heightened awareness of how deeply unjust the country is and was. And through all of that, um, I was a pastor for most of that time. And for really the 15, first 15 years of my adult life, I was a licensed ordained pastor. I was on the staff of churches. I was the senior pastor of a church. And in that role, I walked families through grief. Um, I did eulogies and funerals and weddings and counseling and all of the things that you would expect a traditional pastor to do. And all of those things that I, I went to seminary and was trained and all of that, all of that stuff helps me now at seeing my role. Not I don't see myself as a pastor inside of this movement, but I see myself as an equipped advocate, friend, advisor, guide for families who are in their lowest moments. Um, I've done over 50 eulogies for families who lost their loved ones to the coronavirus. I had not preached a sermon in almost 10 years. And because I live in New York, I didn't grow up in New York because I live in New York now. I cuss a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm not the typical uh, preacher or pastor, you know, but I saw so many families, even here in Brooklyn, um, um, you know, Brooklyn lost thousands and thousands of people, including families in my own neighborhood. And families were not even able to have funerals. And I wrote a, a post one day just saying, like, listen, if your loved one has passed away and you need help through the process, here's my number. Here's my here's my email address. And families all over the country called me. And uh, there was there was a period at the height of the pandemic where I was doing sometimes two and three funerals a day. And um, and so all of my past as a pastor, I still lean on that. And um, and 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 I, I just feel uniquely equipped to help families navigate kind of the 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 worst of the worst. Your um, your work is about black justice. You live in Brooklyn, black wife, five black kids. Um, and yet a lot of black Morehouse grad, right? And yet a lot of black people want to chirp about he's not really black. And right. like for white people to say that is one thing, but we also understand the 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 nature of our skin tone goes of the whole gamut. We understand sure. The nature of our families are complicated. You know, you may or may not know your dad at birth or whatever. 
Um, I, I don't want to get into the specifics because you've discussed that in detail. But just, yeah, but I don't mind. I, I don't. But, but, how do you, but how do you feel about black people? Just the work that you've been committed to for so many years, and black people questioning. But is he really black? Well, again, it, I think what makes me sad about it is not that black folk ask it. It's that black folk are easy prey for misinformation. Mm-hmm. And even in the 2016 election, studies showed that literal foreign governments, when they wanted to destabilize the 2016 election, didn't target Latinos. They weren't targeting Muslims or Jews. They targeted us. They understood that in part, because we have an information crisis of where we get our news from, where we get our information from, which is primarily Twitter, primarily Facebook feeds, that we were prone to actually believing that memes were true. That if it's tweeted, it's real or close to real. And so literal foreign governments decided that the easiest way to destabilize the election results would be to target us through ads and misinformation. And we are easy targets for misinformation in general. Rumors spread on black Twitter and on black social media feeds, literally the studies have shown this, faster than they do anywhere else, and they last longer. And what's crazy, I'm a grown-ass man. I'll be 41 this year. For the first 35 years of my life, nobody ever questioned my race, my background, and my story of who my parents are, all of like. That stuff, I had, I had talked about this wi- like widely. There were no secrets. This wasn't an expose. Um, you could literally go back to elementary, middle school, high school, friends, teachers, counselors, advisors in the 80s and 90s who knew me as Sean King, a product of an interracial relationship. Like this wasn't, this is not a modern lie, a modern creation. It, in, it impacted my, my story, my life. Um, and after uh, Rachel Dolezal, which is a crazy story, like it is a, a batshit crazy story that a white woman who went to Howard as a white woman later shapeshifts herself into a multiracial or black person in in Washington state and lives this life because people people don't remember her in that way until she finally gets busted. Well, in light of that, uh at that point, the again, the only people who were ever questioning my race were literally Breitbart, Steve literally Steve Bannon talked about it on his own podcast. He was at Breitbart and was fueling a lot of this. And when my wife and kids and family and others saw white supremacists and conservatives talking about it, our thought was, again, that sucks. It's shitty. I'm 35 at this point. A grown-ass man who has lived an entire black life. Our thought was that it would just pass away, that it it would literally last for a few weeks or a few months. 
And sure enough, kind of in the shadows of Rachel Dolezal, uh, my story and name got thrown in with that. And for a while, people, there were even some other people who people said, like, is this person really black? Is that person black? And again, I think me being at the center of fighting in the Black Lives Matter movement, at first, the almost the only people talking about it were racists and conservatives and trolls. And then before you knew it, it just hopped the fence again and became this thing. Like we see it online every day. Um, people saying that we've made it up. People show pictures of random white men from all over the country. They say, I look like this man's my father. <laughs> that, you know, and it's just like, it's like outer space, man. It, it's one of the weirdest things. Like people, we see, we've counted almost 300 different things people say I'm lying about from like not just 300 lies about my race, but about everything in my life. And the two things that have stuck are that I'm lying about my race and that I'm actually stealing a ton of money. And both of those are juicy and, and have proven to be really effective. And because they're effective and won't go away, my gut tells me from now until the day I die, people are going to be saying this shit. When you like, say it's not going away. When you say effective, has it has it impacted your ability to do what you wanted to do? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's effect it's it it's been effective. It's effective in two ways. One, if you if you believe it's true, it speaks if I am lying about my race and I'm stealing money from families or money for causes that is so shitty and so shady that I would not trust me. If I, if I saw that about someone else and believed it, I would not trust that person. And so when you see it day after day, week after week, month after month, it erodes people's trust and support. I have seen I think the only thing that's like affected me personally, I have seen celebrities, artists, uh, you know, uh, people with verified accounts across Twitter, news personalities, retweet misinformation about me as if it was real. Well, if you see Soledad O'Brien say it, and you think Soledad must know the truth, and then you retweet it, and then someone else retweets it, it is, um, it's, it's not just an echo chamber. Like it's, and I've done everything I can to correct it. It has caused, I have had events canceled over this type of stuff. I've had, uh, I've had people decide not to work with me because they saw something that was complete misinformation but purported to be true by people they thought they could trust. Um, it causes, for instance, when I'm popular, politicians will retweet me. On a day where I'm trending for some bullshit, people won't touch me with a 10-foot pole. And, and so it affects, it affects the way I, I do anything publicly. And so even though I have a devoted base of support, it causes a cloud of suspicion to 
to be over me. And then what it does, furthermore, is it causes people who say any random lie about me. If you think lie A and B are true, lies C, D, E, F, and G might also be true. Sure, if you're a liar. And, and, it, and so it's like, this, this is my daily life. And um, people ask, when, when, when lies spread about me across social media, people ask my wife about it. Uh, people ask my kids about it, uh, their friends, family. Um, I've, there've been times where I've worked at, at the New York daily news or the intercept where I've been literally like called into the office by supervisors to explain complete fabrications on the internet. And, uh, like they want to know, did, did you do this? And, um, so no, it's, it's effective in the sense that it's a major distraction for me, and it causes it causes a stain on my reputation. There was a young brother in Minnesota who was wrongly convicted by Amy Klobuchar and for a crime he didn't commit. And I studied, I took a deep dive into the case. And horrible, horrible case. And me and our organization, the Grassroots Law Project decided that we wanted to throw ourselves into helping this family and to get him exonerated. I work often with the Innocence Project on cases all over the country. And local activists and organizers went to this family and told this family, Sean King steals money from families. He's, he's not black, he's white. The family told me this. And like, you should not work, you should not work with him. You should not trust him. So the family decided that they wouldn't work with me we had already built a microsite, a campaign to fight and advocate for this young man. He's still in jail. There's, there's, no, there's no campaign fighting for him. The activists and organizers who said don't work with Sean King didn't take the case up themselves. And, and so in that sense, it not only harms me, but it causes people to say like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I should work with this guy. And uh, it's, yeah, it's terrible, man. I know that you are incredibly dedicated to your work because i see the output with the social and the writing and the book which we haven't gotten to yet um and and, and the podcast and all those other things but you got five kids <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean i got two kids and that's a huge distraction from my day and my <laughs> life uh, it's five children well, man how do you i started having kids i started having i was almost a kid when i started having kids which i don't advise right anybody who sees or hears this later don't do that how old were you <laughs> when your first was born uh well we were not my wife and i have known each other i'm 40 now we've known each other since we were 15 wow and so we've been together for almost 25 years wow and we were 19 and 20 when she was pregnant with our first and we were students at Morehouse and Spelman. And at that time it was, and it really still is like Morehouse and Spelman are conservative in a sense. Like it was super inappropriate to be pregnant and a student at Spelman. Like you might as well have been pregnant in high school, you know, like even though we were adults, in a consenting relationship and all that type of stuff. It was like super frowned upon and uh, we weren't married and uh, we had hoped to get married, but here we were like, I was student government president and 
it was super politically incorrect at Morehouse and Spelman. I didn't have a job. I had a work study. I had a work study job and was living off of like student loan refunds. And, and, and so all of a sudden, how my wife and I saw the world, everything changed. I mean, we were, we were a step above being kids. And, and when you are sophomore and junior in college, you're a glorified child. And <laughs> even though we were doing adult shit, we had to grow up really fast from there. Um, you know, so we struggled, struggled, like with bold print capital letters, struggled to finish college. <laughs> you know, like I was having, we got an apartment. I got a full-time job doing, this was right after 9-11, doing airport security <laughs> at the Atlanta airport. Here, I mean, it required me to humble myself. I was one of the most known student leaders in all of Atlanta. I'm working airport security to pay the bills. Um, and, and so we started super, super young. And we've had three biological kids of our own. And then our oldest daughter and our youngest child, a, a daughter, are our biological nieces. And uh, but they've lived with us since our our youngest, who is eight now, has lived with us since the day she was born. And our oldest, who is 20 and in college, has been with us since she was in kindergarten. So we had three biological kids of our own. And then uh, my wife's sister lost custody of all of her kids of some horrible life mistakes. And uh, and and we took two of those kids to, to be a part of our family. So you have, so how many children live under your roof now? Oh, uh, well, they're, they're five, all five kids are here, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, Plus so your sister's kids? Here. Huh? Plus your sister's kids? No, no. My wife and I have three kids. Yeah. And my wife's, two of my wife's uh, sister's kids, like, they're not guests here. We have, right. they are our kids, right. you know? And so that's five kids total. And I mean, um, one of the first, uh, one of the, I, I imagine five children to be chaotic, and and I'm sure it is. But I can, must say, I I think it was the first time, or one of the first times that I actually met you. You were sitting um, uh, with your children, and it was extre- Everybody was chilling, quiet, just meditative, just like <laughs> peaceful, and it was like. Is that, oh, that's Sean. And it was like, you wouldn't imagine like five kids and two parents are just sitting, like even the little ones were just oh, like. Oh, no, they're good kids, man. Yeah, no, no. They're, so, of course. Because my, my kids yeah. are like a movie all the damn time. <laughs> well, we have, though. We have those moments. But, um, so see, the thing is, because our, so we have kids in elementary school, middle school, high school, and college. And when you have kids that are that range, and so even though I'm 40, we have a 20-year-old, you know, like even though I'm 40, we have an 18-year-old. And so the, four, the, the 18-year-old and the 20-year-old, they serve as like almost like aunts for the youngest. Like okay. they, are, they are adults in our house who, and the, but even before they were this age, they have always been super active, big sisters to their younger siblings. So when you have that big gap, uh, it, everybody's not wiling out. Like there are days where shit's crazy. 
and we have and, and we like half of New York, we got a, a, a pandemic dog and added a dog to our family. <laughs> so it's five kids plus the dog. And uh, there are times where it's like, oh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy as hell in here. And particularly during the pandemic, you're just all stuck in the house. It's a lot. But uh, they're all super good kids. Uh, yeah, super. No, all all families have their challenges, but no, they're super, super well behaved, super good kids. And they particularly know how to hold shit together in public that of of all the they all have their own challenges and issues, but they know how to hold it together for a couple hours out out at dinner, out of the game. They can hold that shit together for a little bit. See, that's <laughs> some black shit, because yeah. right. Don't act out in public. Don't oh, let people no, see you acting a fool out there. You might play some shit in the house, but like, come on, don't yeah, embarrass no, me no, out the street. You get snatched up, man. You get snatched up real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sorry it took so long to get to your book. There's just been so much. Oh, no, 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 man. I, hell, I just planned. I didn't even know we were talking about the book, man. I just, I knew, I knew my book was out and I knew we were talking, but, you know, uh, my publisher probably hates me because... I'm a, although I promote it as much as I can on social media, anytime I get on an interview like this, like I'm, I'm, I'm not a salesman in that sense. And so, um, most of these interviews that I've done over the past few weeks, uh, most people are smart enough to know, to always bring it back to the book. And I just, you know, I, I'm I'm just not that dude, man. <laughs> and so I'm just glad we got a chance to talk, you know? Well, tell me a little bit about uh, the book. Yeah, yeah. So the book is called Make Change. And I really wrote the book to answer one question. And of all the things that we've talked about, you know, over the past hour, one thing we, we haven't talked about is over the past six years, from the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement until right here in the middle of this pandemic, Man, I have traveled to 47 states, organizing, speaking, teaching, training, leading, learning, listening. Um, I mean, all, all over this country to all, I think I've traveled to the 75 largest cities in this country. But beyond that, I've gone deep into Alaska, North and South Dakota, Montana, deep into the Mississippi Delta, all over all over Texas and California, all the way up to Maine, Hawaii, and everything in between. And over these past six years of, of traveling, I think more, certainly more than any leader in the movement, but as much, I used to compare even my travel to, to Bernie Sanders' travel. I think I've traveled to one or two more states than Bernie. And over that time, I was struck because I got one persistent question over and over and over and over again. It didn't matter. It, was, it, it could be in a Q&A session. It could be as I was walking the streets of New York before the pandemic. People would come up to me and say, Sean, I am, I am bothered by injustice. And they might, they might describe police brutality, mass incarceration, racism, or bigotry. But I don't really know what to do about it. And they might say, Sean, I've, I've done some marches and protests. Sean, I've tweeted. Sean, I've donated. Sean, I've donated to your projects. I've donated to families. I've, I, Sean, I vote. But the problem that I was fighting against in 2014, shit, it's still here in 2020. It, it, has, it seems to be an immovable object. Sean, how do I use my life 
to actually change these problems. And for the past six years, every time somebody asks me that, I've been asked that question a thousand times. I've tried to drop some truths and give them some nuggets. And I've tried to, in some ways, cut and paste the answer for anybody who, who asked me. And really what I came to understand is that even though that question sounds super simple, how do I use my life to change the world? It's an easy question, but the, the answer, if you want to be honest about how change is actually made, you can't fit that answer into a tweet. You can't fit it into a 30-second conversation on the train. I took in this book, I took 272 pages to tell people, here is how you use your life to actually change things, to change systems, to change the, the structures of racism, of police brutality, of mass incarceration, of climate change, of, of violence. I've tried to give people a lens through which to see how these systems were built so that they can understand how to dismantle them and how their life can fit into that process. So the book is not, a, it's not an autobiography. I tell my story in places throughout it, but it's really a book about your life and how you can use your life to change the world in measurable, tangible ways. It's not an easy book. Like I, I hope it's interesting. I hope people find it uh, at times comical, emotional, infuriating, and everything in between. But less than that, it's a book that I want people to live. It's a, it's, um, I wrote it for, for it to be put to practice. And uh, uh, it's getting great reviews of people who've burned through it. The, uh, the audio book was also a labor of love. We took almost a year to produce it. Wow. Uh, the audio book has five original songs throughout. It has brilliant guest voices from, from Busta Rhymes and Chuck D to the family of, of Breonna Taylor and more. And uh, so we made it a super interactive, interesting audio book as well. And um, it's just designed to show you how change is made. It doesn't just happen. You got to make that shit. And it's hard as hell. And even when you do your best work, it's still hard. And uh, so it's, it's an honest, transparent look at my successes and failures, lots of failures. I talk about a lot of the things that we've talked about, including the juicy shit and all the questions and weirdness and things that people say. Uh, and just say that part of fighting for change is subjecting yourself to a lot of bullshit. And uh, that just that comes with it. What is your superpower? What is the thing that you do that has fueled the success that you've had? Uh, yeah, I, I don't call it a superpower in the book, but I, in chapter two of the book, it's, it's really the only chapter that is super autobiographical. And I, I tell my story of, in some ways, it is an origin story of how I came to be who I am, you know, in March of 1995, I was 15 years old. I was living in rural Kentucky, and I was brutally assaulted by a racist group of students at my high school. And that came after almost two years of being harassed by these guys day in and day out. And 
it had been a brutal, my freshman and sophomore year in high school were brutal. And it basically ended in March of my sophomore year of just being assaulted so badly that I missed the next two years of high school. I had three spinal surgeries. Uh, the recovery from all of those surgeries was horrible. I had fractures in my face and ribs. I had PTSD. The emotional trauma of it was, it's hard for people who haven't been through something like that to understand. Like the emotional comeback was as hard as the physical comeback from it. I, mean, I was just a shattered boy. And because of, of that, I lost some things. I lost whatever, whatever a childhood is, it ended on that day. I lost my childhood. I lost a degree of, of innocence. I, I used to be physically fit and athletic. I lost that. And the surgeries and the pain from it, which I still have, really changed me physically. But it also put something in me that I, I don't think I would have had had I not endured that. It gave me a heightened sensitivity to people who had been wronged. None of those guys who did that to me were ever held responsible. Mm. My, mother, my mother and I sued the school. She was a simple factory worker who worked at a light bulb factory there in Versailles, Kentucky. She was, you know, mad and crushed that this had happened to me. We did everything we could to try to hold the school, the, the young men who did it, the county responsible with no luck. And when I came out of that on the other end, having been through those surgeries and recovery, I had a real heart for justice and it's not a fad. It's like, it's, 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 it's in me. But I think my, my, my superpower, if, if you would call it that, is just, um, I take the pain and injustice that people experience personal in a way that is a double-edged sword. Like I, I can't let go. And so it caught, and I talk about this in the book, it causes me to obsess over cases, but it also, I'm so obsessed over a case that when I'm trending on Twitter and people are spreading lies and bullshit, I just push through it. And so, um, even, so it's a, it's a heightened sensitivity to people's pain and, and just a deep desire to fight for justice. And it's what helps me endure the failures the drama, uh, it's, it's what helps me push through all of that. Thanks so much to Sean for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Graville Calais, Michelle, Brenda Cox, Kathy F., and Kina Murphy. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. And check out my newsletter, Black Minds Matter. Go to blackmindsmatter.substack.com. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garfano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shonda Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday and on Friday with more amazing guests 
because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 